Now, let me try and tie this in a little bit at least to our, our studies on the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. When we gather on the Lord's Day, we gather to do one primary thing, and that is worship. And we do many other things on the Lord's Day. We fellowship, we get together as families, we talk about things, but all of it primarily is boiling down to worship. That's the purpose of the day. That's why we come here. And we often say in this church that we want our homes to be like little churches. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we want the operations and activities of our homes to be such that they reflect the practices of the gathered local church itself. And what are the things that a local church does? Well, many things, but among them we pray for one another, we encourage one another, we tend to each other's needs. We have fellowship and intimate relationships that we build. We are a part of the teaching and discipling of one another. We hold each other accountable. And above all, we love each other. And all of those things that we do here in the local body can be seen and should be seen in our homes as well. In the home, there is to be mutual encouragement, love, support, teaching, and discipleship, discipline, and intimate fellowship between the members. But the pinnacle of our lives as a local church is when we cease from our day-to-day -day operations and duties and we come together as one body to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the activities that I just mentioned that a local church body engages in with one another come to their apex and their climax each Sabbath day when we assemble together to stir one another up. And in order that our homes might be a reflection of this glorious church structure, the Lord has appointed that we, as Christian homes, should have a tool that allows us to put aside the comings and the goings of each day and to assemble as a family unit to worship God together. And that tool, of course, is family worship. That is the time that we set aside in our homes to give God the worship due to His name. And it's almost like a little Sabbath within the home itself. Because in that time, the work of this life ceases and we devote ourselves corporately as a family to the worship of God Almighty. So in a way, our individual days throughout the week are almost like a microcosm of the week as a whole. Each week we have time to carry out our earthly labors and then we set aside one day in seven to worship. And we leave behind the cares of the world. And each day, we take some time and we set it aside to gather as a family and to hear the word of God expounded and to strengthen the bonds of fellowship within the family. And those little Sabbaths in our homes are like a bridge that connects one Lord's Day to the next. We often say, I, I've said it and I know I've heard many of you say it, that we wish the Lord's Day didn't have to be separated by six full days in between. Because we know what happens that in those six days, our mind begins to become consumed with worldliness. And by the time Saturday evening rolls around, it becomes hard to reorient ourselves and be prepared to worship the next Sabbath day. And so we wish often that there were only three or four days in between each Sabbath so that uh, the... the impact that the world has on us might be lessened and we could not have as much time in between those wonderful pinnacles of our week. 
Well, the good news is God has given us just such a bridge that allows us to go from one Sabbath to the next without that complete collapse that many of us experience. And that, of course, is family worship. Family worship is given to us so that we might not be consumed each week with the world, but that we can exercise ourselves in praise to God with fellow believers each and every day. And the strain, if you feel a strain each Lord's Day morning, as I sometimes do, about the fact that you're so earthly-minded and you're, you're having to gear yourself up for worship and it feels like it's so hard to transition from one to another, often the more you experience that, it's typically a, a good indicator for you of how well you have utilized family worship during the week. John Calvin said that the life of a Christian is to be one single unbroken stream of piety. In other words, we are not to have as Christians these, these massive swirls from great highs to then great lows where we feel really, really close to the Lord one week and we're on a spiritual high and then we come down for two, three, four weeks and then we get it back again and we, and we come back up and then, and then we go down. We're, we're not to have those highs and lows. Yes, there will be some up and down in the Christian life, but it's not to be this massive, inconsistent swirling from one side to the next. And so with all of that said, by way of introduction, and hopefully the link between the, the Sabbath series we've been engaging in and this being somewhat established, let me outline for you some of the points that we want to address this evening. First, I want to talk about the biblical and theological foundations of family worship. Then we're going to talk about how to actually do it practically. Third, we'll talk about the duties of all the parties involved, particularly husbands and wives. And then finally, we'll consider some of the benefits of family worship and some of the key factors that should drive us to do it well. First then, the biblical foundations of family worship. There are many, but we're going to focus in on just three. The first is this. The Lord Jesus Christ promised us that He would build His church. Now we all know this text. From Matthew, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Christ himself promised that he would build his church. Now, if we're honest, when most of us read that passage... And we envision the fact that Christ is building his church. We typically think of Christ building his church in terms of the fact that he adds new members to its ranks. We know that Christ saves sinners and that every time Christ saves a sinner, a new number is added to the church of Jesus Christ. And so we often send missionaries and we preach the gospel and we pray that the lost might be converted so that Christ can build his church and that all of the elect may be brought into his fold. But how often when you read that verse do you think that Christ's building his church is just as much to be found in the sanctification and spiritual growth of the members who are already there as it has to do with numerical multiplication? And often many of the problems in modern evangelicalism 
come from the fact that we have focused so heavily on, on trying to coerce the Holy Spirit into growing the church numerically. That's what we love because we are carnal, tangible men and, and numbers, strength in numbers is something we can get our eyes and our hands on. And that's a problem. It's not bad that the church grows, but we become so obsessed with it that we start playing gimmicks and games to try and artificially inflate the numbers. We need to rediscover the renewing of the inward man amongst the people of God and allow the church to grow spiritually instead of pumping it full of driftwood. And one of the greatest means Christ has given to his church for it to grow spiritually is the consistent practice of family worship amongst its members. Now, I often hear people in this church state, and I would say this as well, that we are very thankful for the gifts that God has given to the members of this church and for the consistent preaching and the full counsel of God that we get every Sunday. We love this church and we want it to grow spiritually. And so I ask, do you really, do you really want this church to grow spiritually? If so, then you'll recognize that you get the most spiritual benefit out of this body when its members drive you closer to Christ and that they could only do so if they themselves are growing closer to God and in holiness. And if you want to bless others, then you will seek ways to grow out spiritually so that you might be a powerful tool in the hand of the Lord Jesus to bless His church. If you want this church to grow spiritually, you yourself must grow along with the members of your family because you and your family are a part of this church. And if you neglect consistent family worship, you're going to stunt your own growth, the growth of your family, and the growth of this church. If you really believe that it is Christ's intention that His church should grow, and if you love this body, then you will commit to using this precious means of grace that the Lord has given to us. So that's the first biblical foundation of family worship. The Lord Jesus is building his church, and he has appointed this as one of the means that he will use to do just that. The second biblical foundation for family worship comes from the example of Joshua. You remember that after the time of the conquest of the land of Canaan, Joshua was almost 110 years old, and he knew that he was about to die. And so what does he do? He gathers all of the people of Israel at a place named Shechem in order to renew the covenant that Yahweh had made with his people. And at the climax of his impassioned plea to the Israelites, he speaks the following words. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But we all know the verse, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here we have the leader of Israel with just one final chance to address the nation that is to be the dwelling place of God on earth. He's got one final shot to tell them, all assembled in one place, what it is that they must know and do. What is going to be the most important thing for them to remember as a people after he's gone? He could have picked a lot of things to tell them. There were a lot of laws in the law of Moses if they were to follow. But he knows he can boil it all down to just one thing. 
He can cut through the thick of the law just like the Lord Jesus Christ did and reduce it to the foundational elements from which the rest of it is built. And he tells them that their godliness will come down to whether they and their households serve the Lord. Now that word serve in Hebrew is a very important word. It is the word avad. And it carries with it a connotation that's very different from our English word for to serve. You see, most words have a range of possible meanings. Just think of the, the word left in English. It can mean a lot of different things. Same with the word right. Most words have a range of meanings, and it depends on the context as to which meaning it has. But usually one meaning is the predominant or common one. In English, when we think of the word serve, we typically think of the context of a, a master and his servant. Uh, you know, he serves really well. He's a great servant. Or perhaps we might think of service in terms of one person doing really nice things for other people. Our word, though, doesn't go much beyond those contexts. But in Hebrew, it's very different. In Hebrew, the word serve actually means worship. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the book of Kings, we often read about the apostasy of the nation of Israel and its leaders. And the recurring sin of Israel throughout her history was that she worshipped false gods. That she whored after the gods of other nations because they didn't place the demands upon Israel that God placed upon his people. And if you read the description of the apostasy of that nation and its leaders, you'll often notice that their idolatry is described as their serving other gods. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, God predicts that Israel will be unfaithful when she gets into the land. And he says that the people will look back and they will fully understand why the judgment that's being brought on them is happening. He says in verse 25, And the people will answer, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served, avodded other gods, and they worshipped those gods whom they had not known. Gods that the Lord had not given them. Notice that they served other gods and that serving is directly tied to worship. Almost 900 years after Moses gave those words in Deuteronomy, when the punishment that God spoke of was actually unfolding, when the, when the Judaites were cast out into Babylon, Jeremiah prophesies to the people. And he tells them that this is exactly what God had warned them would happen. He says, you will answer this people. It is because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and followed other gods and served them. They abandoned me, and they did not keep my instruction. In Exodus 23, 24, Moses warns the people by saying, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them as the other nations do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Now notice... When the Israelites serve these other false gods, they're not passive in their serving. It's not just saying that they have an attitude of service to these other gods or a spirit of service or a servant's heart toward these other gods. Their serving other gods manifests itself in physical actions on their part. They bow down. In other places it says that they offer sacrifices and serve. The gods. This service, this avad, is an active worshiping of something. It's not a state of mind or heart, and it manifests itself in ritual activities. Now, why do we go through all that? 
Because when Joshua says that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he's not saying that he's just going to post up a sign from Hobby Lobby in his house with a Bible verse on it and generally try and have a good attitude and a servant's heart to please the Lord. No, he's saying that he and his household will engage in specific, predetermined activities that God himself has appointed in order to worship him. They're not just going to slather a general veneer of moralism or religiosity over their home while holding on to worldliness. No, they are going to set aside time to actively worship God with specific duties. That's what a vibe means. You're not just, it's not a general mindset. It's actual activities that you do. And that's what Joshua is saying. He and his household will engage in specific worshipful duties to the Lord. That's the second biblical basis for family worship. Godly households set aside time to avod God together. Third biblical foundation for family worship is the nature of the triune God himself. God is revealed in Scripture as one being in three persons. The Scriptures plainly teach there's only one God... Hear, all Israel, the Lord our God is one. I am the Lord your God. There was none before me, and after me shall no God be formed. And yet, in addition to monotheism, one God theology, the Scriptures also teach that the Father is God, the Son is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. And yet they are not the same person. They are distinguished from one another. In other words, God has existed in personal relation from eternity past. And there's a sense in which the relationship between the persons of the Trinity is analogous to the family. Now, it would probably be better to say that the human family is a creaturely reflection of the Godhead because we're made in God's image. He's not made in our image. But however you want to define the connection between the two, uh, the family and the Godhead, you can't deny that God intended for the family to mirror the image of himself. Just think about the language that the triune God has chosen to use in order to reveal himself to us. The first person of the Trinity is called the Father. The second person is called the Son. That's the language of human family. We didn't invent that language. That's how God chose to reveal himself to us. Now, we don't take that language and run wild with it and start... Envisioning God having sexually procreated a son with a woman, that was a mistake that Muhammad made. He didn't understand Christian theology. And there have been many other heretics in church history who have taken this analogy and run way too far with it. But between the persons of the Trinity, there is a bond of love that exists, and each person has their own unique roles to play in that relationship. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And the goal of each person in their roles is to magnify and glorify the triune God himself. And that is exactly what we as Christian families do. We operate as a unit in the bonds of love for one another in order to glorify the triune God. And every person in the family has their own unique roles to play in this equation. The husband is obviously the head of the household, just as the father is the head of the son. The son voluntarily submits to the father, even as wives and children submit to the husband and the father. And it is in this mutual fulfillment of duties that our family reflects the order and structure within the Godhead itself. 
Listen to the words that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Now did you catch the language at the first part of the passage? The apostle says, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The apostle ties the constitution of the family itself to its reflection of the nature of God. Our families are named after God. And for a Jew, a name defines the essence of something. That's why when you read back in the Old Testament, you'll see all these Hebrew names that mean something really specific, like son of worthlessness, or someone's name means king of righteousness, because a name defines a thing. And the family gets its name from the Father himself. It's named after the Father. And so its essential elements derive from the nature of God himself. And so we should not strive in our families, should we not strive in our families, to live up to the name that God has given to us. We ought to reflect the love and the worship that exists within the triune God itself by operating in a spirit of love and service, worshiping God together. I think that's obvious. So, those are just three foundations, biblical foundations for family worship. There are actually a lot more. Um, We could actually do a whole sermon on this, but we need to move on to some practical matters. And as we go, we'll point out some other biblical examples and we'll continue to build upon these foundations. So that's the foundations of family worship. Now, let's move on to point two. How do you actually do family worship? If what we've seen is true, that Christ is building the spiritual strength of His church through family and corporate worship, and that godly saints of old, just like Joshua, were always defined by how their households gathered to worship God, and that the operations and mutual service of our families actually reflect the nature of God, then how should we actually carry out our duties on a day-to-day basis? I think the best place to start before we even get into the how-tos is to answer the question, what time of day should this be done at? What time should we gather to worship? Well, just like the Israelites were to have morning and evening sacrifices of praise to God, and on the Lord's Day we have a morning and evening sacrifice of praise and worship, ideally, family worship should be done in the morning and evening. Now, I know that most of us run into a problem right there, and I am included in this. I have to leave for work each day before the sun rises, and my family is long still in bed. It's not like ancient Israel where I rolled out of bed and my day's labor was found right outside my door in my farm. I have to get into a car and drive a long way off. And I don't think it's necessarily wise to burden your family by getting them up at unnatural hours just so you can say you've checked off a morning worship from your to-do list. So family worship's not possible for your family in the morning. I understand, but at the very least, it should be taking place in the evenings. Now, for those of you who can reasonably reasonably have a morning family worship session, I think you should do so. You might even make it a bit shorter than your evening service. Maybe just 10 minutes. Maybe you gather together, you sing a psalm, 
You read some scripture, you pray, something like that. If you can arrange your schedule, men, it, it may require you to put in a little bit of effort so that you can have morning worship. I think you should do so. I think it would be very beneficial to your family, and I think that's a pattern that we see in Scripture. I know one of the things I'm lo- most looking forward to about switching jobs in a year is that hopefully my new job's not going to begin as early as my current one, and so I'm going to try and implement some morning worship for our family. So that's when you should do it. Morning and evening, but at bare minimum, at least in the evening. So then what are the elements of family worship? Let's say we've gathered around the table now. What do we actually do? Does the Father get up and give a one-hour spiel and one-hour sermon like we do in corporate worship? Do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Is there a corporate prayer? What are the elements of family worship? Fortunately, I don't think we have to speculate. We can look at Scripture and we can see that God's people have always followed a certain pattern or always had certain elements to their family worship. The first element of corporate worship is the proclamation and teaching of God's Word. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone here. Consider the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6. We've all heard them. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Notice here that the Lord commands that the words He has given to the people of Israel be taught diligently to every family member. And what words had he given them? The words of the book of books of Moses. In other words, the, God is saying here that the word of God itself is to be taught by the men of Israel to their households each and every day. Notice also in this verse that this teaching is not actually limited to any particular time of day. It goes beyond just family worship. It's enjoined upon them as something to be taught at all hours of the day. He said when you rise up and when you lie down, that's morning and evening. When you go out into the fields, usually their kids would be with them and they would have opportunities to discourse. And when you walk by the way, when you're traveling, that's sort of a synecdoche for all parts of the day. You are to be teaching and instructing your families. And the Word of God is to be the subject of our instruction. But what does that look like, fathers? How do you teach the Word of God to your wives and children? First, it begins with some preparation on your part. You're not just going to show up to family worship, read a passage to them that you've not spent any time thinking about or analyzing yourself, and then come up with some great lessons and great questions right on the spot without having those awkward pauses where you're trying to come up with something to say. You're going to have to put in some preparation. Now, it doesn't have to be 30 minutes or an hour every single day, but you need to have read and considered the passage that you're going to be bringing before your family. Your family is going to be able to tell when you're unprepared. And it won't be a very profitable time of worship. I can remember several instances where I thought I would just do it on the fly. And I got through the first parts. And then it was time to go to the next lesson or the next doctrine or something. And I just kind of sat there and was stuttering for a bit. And it was really awkward. And it was obvious that I had not prepared. And it didn't go very well. So you need to prepare. What do you prepare? Well, once you've read the passage over by yourself, you need to consider its main themes or doctrines and maybe some subsidiary points that are also found in the text. So maybe in your text, the the primary theme of the passage is the justice of God in punishing sin. But maybe somewhere else in the text, it also makes reference to the fact that God is immutable. 
Well, you can choose to focus on the main point, and you can explain the wrath of God and its necessity, or you can choose to go for a subsidiary point and highlight his immutability. Or if you have time, you can do both. But however many points may be in a text, don't try to tackle too many of them at once. You will dilute your teaching. If you're trying to cover five or six topics, especially with young children, you're, they're going to get almost nothing out of it. It's best to reserve for yourself one, maybe two, I wouldn't do much more than two, main points, main subjects, main doctrines, and look at those with your family. Once you've explained the text, you need to ask questions of your wife and your children. Ask them maybe for other places in the scriptures where they've seen this particular doctrine or idea presented. Or for children, you can actually uh, focus on the main verse and ask them to put it in their own words or tell you what they think the text is teaching, and then you can provide gentle corrections and prodding as needed. So you must explain the main points of the text and what they teach us about God and ourselves through a combination of teaching and questioning. Once the text is explained, it then needs to be applied. You don't just want to fill their heads with factoids about the contents of Scripture. That's great. You do want to do that, but you don't only want to do that. They need to see how the text applies to their lives and what they must do in response to it. So you might say something like, Children, in this text, God strikes the people of Israel with a plague for their sins. God takes sin very seriously. And when you sin, you're doing just what the Israelites did to deserve this plague. So when you disobey your mother, God is very displeased. And he commands you to turn away from doing evil and to obey his word. That's a really simple application that you can bring out from any text. God's punishment of sin means we must turn away from those precious sins we hold on to. And in this case, you apply it to disobedience to parents. Or if there's some other area of sin you're noticing, you can gently point out that sin. But in your application, you want to be careful that you don't uh, humiliate your children or those at the table for too many specific sins in front of the rest of the family, especially with young children. You don't berate little Susie, be... uh, because she failed to take out the trash and you're going after her in family worship for her disobedience and showing your frustration in front of the rest of the family. You don't want to do that. Family worship's not a time to pray to everyone's sins before the rest of the household. You do that in private between parent and child or between multiple children if multiple are involved. But you don't want to embarrass. You don't want to harden your children to family worship and make them dread that this is going to be a time where their dirty laundry is going to be thrown out in front of everybody. You can make application specific to them without having to to, to drag out their sins and flog them in public, so to speak, for doing it. That's not the point. Now, depending on the nature of your family, you might have children of many different ages. And if so, then both the questions you ask, the teaching you give, and the applications you make should be given to specific children in a way that's appropriate to their age and context. For the young ones, you start with the basics of the faith. Who is God? What is sin? Who is Christ? And for more advanced children, most of us aren't there yet, but we will be. As our children advance and as they get older, you can move into more complex topics. What is atonement? Why is it important to distinguish between justification and sanctification? That's not a topic that you should be afraid to tackle in family worship as your family gets ready for it. You know your families. Just be smart and make sure there's something there for everyone every time. Now, you may find, as I do, well, not as I do, but as I will, I'm sure, 
that most of your teaching is geared toward the children. And you may not be able to give as much specific teaching to your spouse during every family worship. Like I said, I'm not there yet because mine aren't old enough to even communicate, so my teaching is geared toward merit. But someday I'm going to begin to orient family worship down to the level of a two- and three-year-old when my sons get a couple more years under their belt. And if so, it may be wise, husbands, to have a discussion of the text afterwards with your wife one-on-one. Maybe you're sitting in bed before you go to sleep and you start a discussion on the text. You don't have to redo family worship in its entirety in this time. Maybe you just discuss the text with your wife and, and make some direct applications that would be more suited to an adult level. But family worship should be a time where everyone can profit. Yes, it's primarily geared toward children, but husbands, we are to be washing our wives in the water of the word, and so we want to make sure our wives are getting something out of it as well. So that's one way to teach God's Word. You can read it to them and then explain it and apply it to their lives. You can pull out doctrines from it. But there's another method of family worship that I think is very important to combine with the method that we're used to and that we've already discussed. And that's catechizing children. Going through the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, that's important and you need to do that. It's often been said, a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. And so we need the whole Bible. But I'm, uh, I think there is also an advantage to teaching your children a more systematic version of the faith. In other words, going straight through the scriptures and pulling out whatever random doctrines you happen to find in each text is good, but it can be hard for children to then understand how all those doctrines connect to each other. It just becomes kind of a scattered map of different teachings that you've laid on them over the years. But they need to see how it all fits together in one system of truth. And that's what a catechism can do for you. It will teach them all the essential doctrines of the faith and how they relate to each other. There have been many churches where people have have gone through the Bible in their personal reading and in their family worship and in the preaching of the church, but they're lacking a holistic understanding of Christian truth because they've not ever had it systematized for them. So they can't really tell you about the relationship between atonement and justification. Because they read Leviticus a long time ago and they learned about atonement. And then they read Romans three years later in their worship or in their preaching. And then they heard about justification. But they were never forced to bring those truths together and see how they interact. But a catechism can do that. That's why the Puritans would preach through the Bible and highlight specific doctrines. And then they would also supplement that with the Westminster Catechism. Because you need both. So I would suggest that you cycle through as a family, both going through the Bible and then having special times where you catechize your children. There are a number of great catechisms. I just mentioned the Westminster. There's also our Baptist Catechism of 1689. I plan on taking my family through the Heidelberg Catechism. That's another great uh, reform document. But I think both of those means are important for the instruction in family worship. Okay. So that's the reading and teaching aspects of worship. But what else should be involved? What other elements will be in your family worship? Well, it won't come as any surprise to you that singing should be a part. And this is an area where I I have to confess that our family worship needs to continue to grow. Psalm 118 is famous for many things. It it speaks of the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, a reference to Christ. It says that salvation is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And it contains the oft-quoted statement, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice 
and be glad in it. There's lots of good things in Psalm 118. But there's another fascinating verse in Psalm 118 that doesn't get a lot of attention. Verse 15 says this, Songs of joy and salvation resound from the tents of the righteous. Think about that for just a second. The tent for Israel was the house. The psalmist is not talking about the temple in Jerusalem where corporate worship takes place. Singing was there. But he says, as you walked among the people of Israel, the homes of godly families, you would hear singing coming from out of the tents as you walked through the road. And don't let anyone tell you that singing is just different vocal pitches that you make with your voice. God has given us the gift of singing. It's designed by Him as a means of praise. And the Lord's people have always worshipped together in singing. So that's something that's to be used by us in our family worship. What do we sing? I'm partial to the Psalms. Um, I love to sing the words of God back to Him. And I, I read of all of the men of old in the Reformation and Puritan times who, who spoke of the blessing of psalm singing. And, and so I resonate with that. That's what they did in the church I came out of. So I would encourage you to incorporate some psalm singing into your worship. You all have the Black Psalter. I think most of us do. If you don't, Paul can get you a copy. Uh, it was given to us about a year ago. And every tune in that is set to the common meter. Common meter. So you can sing tunes like Amazing Grace, God Our Help in Ages Past, or even Joy to the World. Uh, if you're feeling a little weird, you can sing it to Gilligan's Island as well, apparently. But every single psalm in that book is set to the common meter. And so that should be easy for most of us to incorporate. But whatever you sing, whether it's psalms, hymns, or a combination, make sure that it is God-honoring and consistent with the testimony of Scripture. Don't ever sing something that's bad because the tune sounds really nice. Don't ever do that. Don't ever compromise on your theology. Uh, if you would like to learn more songs and hymns, I would encourage you to do that. I think one of the best ways to do that, especially if you're not musically inclined, is to look up new songs, new hymns, and play the video on YouTube of a, a choir singing it. And just have that sitting there playing, maybe kind of in the background, while your family listens and sings along. And it only has to be two, three, four, five times, especially with children. They pick up on these things fast, and your family will know a new hymn. That's one way that you can expand your repertoire of singing is have professionals singing along with you until your family is ready to take it over on their own. All right, third and final element of family worship is prayer. There should be prayer in every family worship session. There has never, ever been the worship of God in history where there has not been prayer to God. Now, there are several ways you can do this. Man, if you would like to pray for the family every single time, that's your prerogative to do so. It's your family worship. But you can also have all of the members of your family involved at different levels in the prayer. Not everyone may pray every single time, but you can take turns praying on different days. Maybe your wife can pray one time, and maybe you can pray another day, and then maybe you can start to incorporate the children as they're old enough and ready. And there are some benefits to doing this. First of all, husbands and wives benefit from hearing one another pray to God. It should stir up your heart when you hear your spouse laying their concerns before the Lord and worshiping Him. I love hearing my wife pray at the end of family worship. It really does warm my heart. And for the children, getting to hear both mommy and daddy pray out loud is a wonderful way of showing them that their parents have unity 
in the gospel. It's not just something that one parent values while the other is just sitting off to the side and is along for the ride. Let them hear both parents have a turn to pray, and it will teach them to pray. And of course, the children can pray. It is our duty to teach our children to use all of the means of grace God has appointed for men, even unregenerate men, to seek him. God has appointed that men may seek him through the reading of his word and through crying out to him. Even the unregenerate man may seek him in that way. And since prayer is among them, you can feel just fine starting your children out praying to God at a young age. Now, Dad, you you may want to help them a little bit by kind of whispering some words into their ear, kind of teaching them to pray, coaching and prodding them. And as they get older, they'll they'll have heard others praying for many years, and, and they'll take it up. They'll learn to do it on their own. Now, what do you pray? Well, that's really up to you, but you do need to pray specific things that are relevant to the needs of your family. Pray for the cut on your child's face to heal. God can deal with that. Pray with your... Pray for your wife to lead your children in godliness during the day. Pray for that little event that Jimmy is anxious about and he keeps bringing up. Pray for him to have peace. Pray uh, that, that everyone may adore God. Pray all of the grand things that we offer up in prayer. Praise God. Talk about the glory of God. All of those things, yes. But don't let your prayers exclusively be talking about theology, so to speak. Bring it down as well to the practicals. Pray for specific things for your family. Pray for the church. Pray for the pastors. Teach your children to love the elders of the church by praying for them. Show that you care about them. Bring it down to specific, tangible things. All right. Those are the elements of family worship. Now, before we move on to the roles of each member of the family, a quick note about the atmosphere of family worship. This is serious business. You are worshiping the living God himself, and parents especially need to treat this time as just that. You need to model it for the rest of the home. We don't slouch over. We don't look like we're ready for family movie night to start. We don't all gather on a couch and kind of lay back casually with our feet hanging over the edge. We are about to come before the living God and worship, and our body posture even should be a reflection of that. Fathers, as you, as you lead, as you read, as you speak, you should have a sober tone. We're about to read God's Word, and so we need to do so with reverence. And we need to pray with fearful humility. If your children can't tell the difference between when you read a children's book out loud to them and when you read them the Scriptures, then you've got a problem. You need to show a reverence for God's Word. Now, you don't have to act like you're at a funeral. There should be joy in family worship, but it should be a reverential joy. They should be able to tell that the atmosphere changes a little bit when we switch into family worship. Things are a little bit different, and they are because we're worshiping God. So we should have an attitude and an atmosphere of reverence in our worship. Okay, duties of each family member. First, we'll start with husbands. The primary responsibility of preparing for and carrying out family worship lies with the head of the family. Fathers, you will give an account for how you lead your family to God's throne each and every night. And I hope that when you take your seat and you pull out your Bible and you look down the table and you see your wife and your children looking at you, you will feel the weight of what you're about to do. 
it probably will seem in your sinful flesh, and it does in mine, like just another day, we're just gathering to do what we did the day before and the day before that. It's just our routine. But you need to stop occasionally and think. This has impact, eternal value before the throne of God. God takes it seriously. And that should cause you, again, going back to that atmosphere thing, to have a reverential treatment of what you're about to do. The, the fate of your wives and children might just rest upon how faithfully you bring the word of God to them every single day. So it should be sobering. It should be humbling. Now, as for an explanation of your role, Christ is the prophet, priest, and king of the church. And your roles in the family mirror his roles in the church. Christ is the prophet who teaches his church. He is the king who rules over his church and the priest who makes intercession for his church. And if you think back to everything we've said so far about the execution of family worship, all of your duties that you actually carry out when you're doing it correspond to one of those three offices. As king, the final authority to organize and regulate your family's worship rests in your hands. When you declare that it is time to worship God, the rest of the home is to joyfully obey and come to the throne of grace. You have the responsibility to organize and execute that time of worship. You determine when and where it will take place. Obviously, you can consult your wife in these things. That's not to the exclusion. But ultimately, you determine where and where it will take place, which passages will be studied, how long it will last, and what each member of the household will do during that worship. Now, just like Christ, you do not lord your power over your family as a tyrant. Christ rules his church in a very tenderly and sensitive way, and you should be so too. You don't pick a time that worship, for worship that will place an unnecessary strain on your family. And you don't require them to sit through one or two hours of family worship, especially with young children. You are wise and compassionate in your role as king of the house. But ultimately, the final authority to execute this task rests upon your shoulders. Now, as prophet, you are called to foretell the word of God to your family. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ came to give his church wisdom from God, he revealed the will of the Father to us and the words of God he explained. And so as prophet, you have the awesome responsibility of being the mouthpiece of God in your family. That's why you must prepare for your task. You would not accept it if your pastor put no effort into speaking the very words of God to you on God's behalf. And so he left you hungry and starving each week because he hadn't prepared, and it was obvious. You wouldn't accept that. I don't think you'd stay here very long. At least I hope you wouldn't. And so likewise, you must study to know God's word that you might declare it to your family and feed them. You are to be the prophet of your home. The Lord Jesus has also tasked you with being priest of your home. Remember the job of the priest was to intercede before God on behalf of the people. And Jesus, the eternal priest, after the order of Melchizedek, has secured your salvation by pleading his blood before the Father. He is the intercessor between you as a member of the church and the Father. And you husbands are to come before the Lord each and every day 
to bring the physical and spiritual needs of your family to the Lord. You must know them, your family, and you must know their needs backwards and forwards so that you can make effective intercession for them before the throne. And in family worship, though you may sometimes share the duty of prayer with other members of the house, you have the primary responsibility of bringing your family to God in prayer as you are gathered for corporate worship. Just like Job offered sacrifices on behalf of his family every day, he took the role of priest of his family. That is the task. That's not just an old covenant thing. That is the task that God has given to the fathers and their households. They are to be the priests. All right, that's husband's duties. They are to be prophet, priest, and king of family worship. Wives' duties. Ladies, we've just spent a lot of time outlining the details of family worship and the duties that husbands have in carrying it out. And so you might be tempted to think that all of the burden rests upon him and that you get to be a passive vessel in this endeavor without any duties of your own. But you would be gravely mistaken. Wives, you have a vital role to play in the successful execution of family worship in your home. Vital role. And what is it? Well, think about it for just a moment. The husband's role in family worship is really just an extension of his role in the entire household. He is the head and leader, and he bears the final responsibility. The same is true in family worship. And your role in, uh, in family worship is just an extension of your role that you carry out as a wife and a mother in the house in general. <clears throat> Ladies, your husband desperately needs your help. In order for family worship to be a consistent success, do not fall into the trap of thinking that the primary duty rests upon his shoulders and so he needs no help from you. You are to be a helpmate and a servant in family worship, just as you are in the rest of your time in the household. So what are some things that you should be doing to help your husband? First, you have a responsibility to give your full attention to the teaching of God's Word that your husband is seeking to bring to you. There is nothing, I promise you, there is nothing more discouraging for a husband than have, to have taken time to prepare to lead his family in worship and to have prayed for the success of that family worship only to have his wife half-heartedly pay attention to what he is saying, but is obviously being mindful of some other things that need to get done all the while. When you give those subtle cues that family worship is just another check off of your daily list and that there are other things that you need to attend to right after this, whether it's cleaning up after dinner, taking care of certain things for the kids, or something you want to look at on the internet, there could be a million possibilities. And it is so discouraging for a husband when he feels like you've got something better to do with your time and that he's not good enough to capture your attention. I know that you want your husbands to lead well in the home, but you will do tremendous damage to his confidence and his ability to lead when he senses that you don't give your full attention to what he's doing and what he's saying in family worship. Secondly, and related to what we just said, is that you must show that family worship is of the highest priority in your day. You and your husband should discuss the time and the context of the time when family worship will take place. But when that time comes, 
and your husband indicates that he's ready to begin, you should treat it as if the elders of the church were calling the congregation in to begin Lord's Day worship services. When you tell him to just wait a minute while you run to go take care of a couple things, you are not showing support to your husband. And you're certainly not showing your children that this is a special and holy time that the Lord has gifted to your family. You will teach your children more about how important family worship is by those little unspoken cues you give about its real priority than by any mouth service you give to how important it is. When the husband indicates that it's time to start worship, you should be one who spearheads, helps to spearhead the prompt start of that time by dropping whatever you're doing and helping to gather the children, whatever's happening. You can finish up whatever you're doing later, and your children will learn that they can finish up whatever they're doing later. There's nothing so important that it's more important than the time that God demands from us. Now, there are obvious exceptions to this. If a dad calls for family worship and the child's running in and he falls and hits his nose and there's blood splattering all over the place. Okay, obviously you need to attend to that need right then. That's not an example of of apathy leading to a lack of attention to family worship. You have to use your common sense. But what you are, if what you are doing is something that can in any way wait to be finished, then put it away and come to worship. And whatever you do, when it is time to begin family worship, don't sit on your phone and scroll through social media for two or three more minutes and hold up the worship while your family waits. There are a few things in life more trivial than social media, and it shows our hearts when we delay the start of God's worship for something so worthless. And finally, wives, when husbands attempt to engage you with a question, or they're obviously looking for your commentary on some specific aspect of the passage, try not to just stare blankly. I don't think that'll be a problem for most of us, but it could happen. And I've heard stories where husbands have felt like their wives just kind of gave them a blank stare when they asked a question. Engage with God's word as it's brought to you. If you genuinely don't know the answer to a question, then admit it. Say, that's okay. I just don't know. Could you explain this to me? And they would be happy to do so to the best of their abilities. Uh, you could also attempt, even if you don't know the answer, to reason through what you do know from Scripture and maybe throw out some suggestions for what the answer might be. You don't have to give a John Calvin systematic theological answer to at least engage with questions that your husband is asking. Show that you love God's Word and that you're thankful that your husband is doing his best assuming he is, to try and bring you and your family the Word of God. Engage with it at every opportunity that you're given. Now, the point of this is not to give you a legal list of do's and don'ts. It's to help you see how you can encourage your husband to conduct a worship time that is profitable to you, to him, and to all of the children. Wives, you have a wonderful responsibility because you, I imagine most of us can't even imagine how easy it is to discourage a husband, especially when they're, not, they're new to it, they're not fully confident yet. They need your encouragement and prompt support. And I promise it will help. The more effort they see from you, the more internal courage, even if they don't say it, that they are taking from their wives' prompt attention to what they're trying to do. All right, finally, 
Well, I know we're running out of time, so we'll finish up here. Some motivations for family worship. We've seen that the scripture teaches that family worship is a duty of the people of God. We've looked at a few basics of how to implement it and some roles of husbands and wives in conducting it. But now we need to examine what are some factors that should give us motivation. The Bible says it, so that should be one, but there are some additional things I think we should keep in mind. The first thing that you need to keep in mind is the sanctification of your spouse and your children. Let me speak first to the husbands. Husbands, why did you marry your wife? I remember I was asked that question and I tried to give some pious answer. But the truth is I married her because I enjoy her company and I just enjoy being around her. That was the reason I married her. I love her and I enjoy being around her. I didn't have much more of a specific reason than that. But I was listening to a preacher not that long ago. And he was talking, he said something I won't ever forget. He was saying that there was only one proper reason for marrying a woman. And that in decades of premarital counseling, as he would ask these young couples and these young men specifically the question, why do you want to marry this woman? He said he never once in 30 or 40 years got the correct answer out of a single young man. So why should you marry a woman? The reason you marry a young woman is because you want to wash her in the word, build her up in the knowledge of Christ, and be a means that God uses to present her faultless on the final day. You want to be a means that God uses. You want to prepare her to stand before Christ's judgment seat. And even if that's not why you self-consciously married your wife at first, it can become your driving motivation behind your marriage now. And the goal of washing her in the word is not a nice ideal that you just have. Oh, yeah, just in theory, I'd love for my wife to become more holy. That doesn't actually manifest itself in particular times and places. The primary context in which the washing of your spouse in the word takes place is in family worship. So, men, that's your motivation. You want to come to that moment... When your wife's hand is separated from yours on the final day and she has to approach the bar of justice all by herself and as you look on from a distance, you want to be able to know with confidence that when that gavel drops and the verdict is rendered that you will hear the word righteous spoken over her. And at that moment, you'll be able to rejoice that God allowed you to be a tool in his hand to bring about her sanctification. You have nothing within you inherently that can sanctify anyone. But the Word of God does. And God has appointed that you can use that Word and bring it to your wife and to your children. Wives, you should have a similar motivation. If you love your husband, you want him to know and love the Scriptures so that he may know and love Christ. And the more that he conducts and prepares to conduct family worship, the more time he's going to be in God's Word and that he's going to be preparing And as the leader of the household and the teacher of the family, he is going to bear a greater responsibility and scrutiny. That's just the way it is. And how dreadful would it be if your husband is convicted for failing to teach his family well and that he could look back upon you and say, while I bear the guilt for my own negligence, part of why I did not engage in more family worship is because I felt that you did not value it and that you discouraged me from doing it. That would be a terrible thing to have to face on the judgment day. But if the opposite is the case, 
If your husband hears from Christ, well done. You and the children I have given you and the spouse I have given you, you have taught them well. You will both be able to rejoice in that moment. And then finally, to wrap things up, if you have children, please know that family worship is what will distinguish true religion from fake religiosity in the mind of those children. Children can tell when religiosity is just something that you do by showing up to church on Sunday, but that you're not concerned enough with it to let it impact your daily lives. How many of us in this room grew up in homes where we regularly attended church on Sunday, we were brought to play the religious game, but we could also say that we were seldom, if ever, actually instructed in the Word of God during the week by our own parents. We knew the hypocrisy. It was obvious. We knew it was a formality. We saw the sin that our parents lived in day in and day out, and we saw the inconsistency with what was being preached on Sunday and what was lived out in the lives of our homes. We were, you and I were not fooled by some religious game that our parents put on. And do you really think that your children are going to be any different? They'll know. Family worship is where true religion comes to the heart of a child's daily existence. Now, family worship will not justify your children. It will not wash away their sins. But it may prevent you from being seen as a religious hypocrite and being the very stumbling block that keeps your children from a true knowledge of the Savior. And I'll close with this. We said that there will come a day when you have to witness your spouse standing before the judgment seat. On that same day, you're going to have to watch your children stand before that same judgment seat. And can you imagine the horror of watching your child receive the verdict from Almighty God, guilty, and for them to be able to turn around and look at you across the courtroom as they're being dragged off to hell and saying, though I die for my own sin, you did not do more to prevent this from happening to me. You who were tasked with training me in the ways of righteousness did not carry out your task. And so I die in one sense because of your laziness in carrying out the duties that God gave to you. There's a famous story from a dying Puritan who gathered his children around his deathbed. And he said to them, Children, you know that your mother and I have preached to you the full counsel of God all these years. We have not held anything back from you. With God as my witness, I have faithfully carried out every duty I was given with respect to you. And so now, my children, I go home, and you must carry on this life. But we will see each other again someday. And don't you dare to meet me at the judgment seat of Christ in an unregenerate state. If you do, your guilt will be upon your own head. For my hands are clean with respect to your soul. Don't you want to be able to say that as you approach your deathbed? And you will one day. Don't you want to be able to gather your children around and have the confidence to know that you can slip into the arms of Christ in eternity and that you have carried out the task that he has given you with respect to your family? The growth of this church is dependent upon the growth of its families. And the growth of its families depends upon the faithful execution of family worship by the power of the Spirit. Let's make sure we take up this duty in our homes. It will 
be honored by the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your mercies. I pray that every man, woman, and child here would come to know the joys of family worship and that each would do their part in actively engaging in it and that your spirit would come and bless over time the faithful ministry of the word of God and that this church, 50 years from now, would be filled with small children who are the offspring of our children who were reared in family worship and that our children would still be faithful members of the church of Jesus Christ because they were trained in godliness from a young age. Father, we desire to have an impact in this community for decades to come. And so we pray that you would help us to be faithful in taking up the tool that you've given us to carry that out. We love you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.